Hello and welcome to Poetry Blokes, the podcast where one bloke likes poetry and the other doesn't. I'm Matthew Adamo, failed novelist, third-rate poet, and now a beleaguered poetry teacher. And I'm Ridge Gochran, a moderately successful engineer and lifelong lover of things that actually matter, like football, cricket, and the ability to make stuff out of wood. I don't hate poetry, but I do think it's a lot of words in a confusing order to say very little. Join us in this series of podcasts as we rummage into the recesses of Rich's mind, pull forth any literary force that may be lying dormant, and see if the world's most literal man can acquire the soul of a poet. He doesn't even believe in souls, so I've got my work out already. In this episode, we'll be looking at The Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner, Part 2, by Samuel Taylor Coleridge. The sun now rose upon the right, out of the sea came he, still hid in mist, and on the left went down into the sea. And the good south wind still blew behind, but no sweet bird did follow, nor any day for food or play came to the mariner's hollow. And I had done a hellish thing, and it would work and woe, for all averred I had killed the bird that made the breeze to blow. Ah, wretch, said they, the bird to slay that made the breeze to blow, nor dim nor red like God's own head. The glorious sun uprist, then all averred I'd kill the bird that brought the fog and mist. Twas right, said they, such birds to slay that bring the fog and mist. The fair breeze blew, the white foam flew, the furrow followed free. We were the first that ever burst into that silent sea. Down dropped the breeze, the sails dropped down, twas sad as sad could be, and we did speak only to break the silence of the sea. All in a hot and copper sky, the bloody sun at noon, right up above the mast did stand, no bigger than the moon. Day after day, day after day, we stuck, nor breath nor motion, as idle as a painted ship upon a painted ocean. Water, water everywhere, and all the boards did shrink. Water, water everywhere, nor any drop to drink. The very deep did rot, O Christ, that ever this should be. Yea, slimy things did crawl with legs upon the slimy sea. About, about, in reel and rout, the death fires danced at night. The water, like a witch's oils, burnt green and blue and white. And some, in dreams assured, were of the spirit that plagued us so. Nine fathom deep he had followed us from the land of mist and snow. And every tongue, through utter drought, was withered at the root. We could not speak no more than if we had been choked with soot. Ah, well a day, what evil looks had I from old and young. Instead of the cross, the albatross about my neck was hung. So, Rich, what's that all about? (laughs) The look you give me when you ask me that question is very saucy. (laughs) I do my best. I do my best. <laughs> Can I just say first take as well? First take on that poem, just smashing that. It was beautiful. It's all it, downhill I, from here. You know what? One thing I am learning from this podcast, right, is that somebody reading you a poem helps. <laughs> really, it does. It really helps. Like the cadence and the like the rhymes and stuff. I can listen to a poem much better than I can read one. That's what I'm starting to realise. Yeah, definitely. Well, yeah, their poems are meant to be read aloud. You know, your, your interaction with them mainly is on a page, isn't it? So. Mm. They all started as like a oral history, oral tradition, like ancient Greek style, people singing for their supper. So, yeah, it makes sense, but it is tricky. I mean, if you were in secondary school, I think getting people to read poetry aloud with a bit of vim and vigour would be quite tough. I don't think I'd want to do that as a 15-year-old. 
for example. No. Have you been working on your voice for this podcast as well? Because you've developed a rich timbre. I'm not sure I've noticed previously. An oaky timbre. Uh, <laughs> don't describe my voice as resonant, which I think can be both positive and negative, depending on how you read into that. But I'm taking the positives. If you were stuck in a well, you would have the ideal voice to attract attention to yourself. I think it's like that Father Ted episode where they get stuck in the lingerie section. You seen that? <laughs> yeah, of course I have. Yeah. <laughs> Did you say someone with a dramatic voice? <laughs> <laughs> no. Let's go on with this poem. Some caveats before we start. Here we go. You know how I normally don't read very much. I skim read the poem. Yeah. It's been a busy week at work. (laughs) This one's received a light touch. It's just like at uni. Put your hand up if you have read the text. I just want to know where the baseline is. Where do we start? Did you read the poem at all? Have you read half of it? Well, I've read the whole thing. Okay, well, that's good. But in in my way of reading, not your way of reading it. I will give you my general points yeah please do so obviously end of last week's episode um there was a lot of revelations for me the fact that the ancient mariner is a magic man who has transfixed the individual they didn't just meet at a wedding and that got me thinking why a wedding it just seems completely superfluous information for it to have been a wedding obviously i have again i haven't read on so i don't know if that comes back to be relevant but it seems to me to be basically irrelevant. So if you're reading along at home, you can put that bit out of your mind. It doesn't matter. So it could have been anywhere. It could have been at a bus stop. It could have been in the pub. Basically anywhere where mad people talk to you. <laughs> yeah. Waiting for the 37. Waiting for the 37. 25 into town. So first things first, they've done an about turn and they're now travelling north. Yeah, they are, but they've got the southerly wind with them. They've got a southerly wind with them. Obviously, southerly wind means blowing from the south, not towards the south. For those who aren't aware of how wind directions work. (laughs) (laughs) For for those who are unaware of wind and and its properties. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So they're going north. Rather than just say he's going north, he talks about where the sun is. Very obsessed with describing things in the most complicated ways can. (laughs) I reckon he's just trying to get his word count up. Do you think the publisher said, you have to do us a thousand words? And so rather than say, we're going north, he says... The sun now rose upon the right. Out of the sea came he, still hid in mist, and on the left went down into the sea. That's the same saying. We're going north, lads. <laughs> yeah, there is a bit of that, actually. Not just with Coleridge, but in general, and on into the Victorian era as well. I mean, Coleridge, this is part of the lyrical ballads for Coleridge, and it's like, if you're going to have a ballad, it's got to be a bit ballady, you know? It's got to have a bit of substance to it. Um, yeah, I suppose it does, yep. So I think there is a bit of padding, but, you know, where's the line read? I suppose you could argue that across all of poetry, which you, you would. I mean, that is my main argument. <laughs> yeah. But in the, like, in the, later in the Victorian era with, like, uh, Dickens and novels, they used to serialise them, place them in newspaper editions, like, once a week. So they would literally pad out <laughs> the word count to the max because they got paid <laughs> by the word or whatever. Ah, that's right. What, that's so why you've is... got, like, 27 volume <laughs> story. Right, so there's substance behind that. It's I not mean, the wild ravings of a lunatic this time. <laughs> so they're travelling north. That's good to know. I was happy about that. You know, I'm pretty obsessed with where they're going and what they're doing. Still no real sense of that. He got my heckles up immediately, though, the second stanza, right? Mm-hmm. And the good south wind still blew behind, but no sweet bird did follow, nor any day for food or play come to the marriage's hollow. Yeah, because you shot him, you loon. Yeah. Like, you can't be sad the bird's not there anymore if you shot it with your crossbow, can you? No. 
you're right. He's just reminding everybody. He said, do you remember when there was a bird and it was helpful and I shot it and it just didn't come back? <laughs> <laughs> Has anyone seen? I don't know what Where's Alan. <laughs> I could have sworn there was an Alan. Oh, there he is. He is. He's cleaved in two by a dead horse. <laughs> Crossbow arrow. So, because I was quite irritated with the engine mariner again, right? I was thinking, what do you actually do? It led me to the other thing that he hasn't specified. As we said in the previous episode, he's not very specific on any details. And one of the details he doesn't, he hasn't told us is what he actually does on this ship. So, I'll tell you what he isn't. Basically, I made a list of things that he isn't. So, he isn't the captain. No. Because he doesn't know where they're going. He's probably not a helmsman or anybody else with any sort of responsibility for directing the ship. Uh, in fact, I know he isn't because he references the helmsman previously. So he seems to have plenty of time to write his poems and he hasn't made any sort of mention of knots or sail setting or he hasn't referenced yanking on a halyard. So, I'm guessing he's not actually doing any sailing. Uh, and then I thought, well, where does that leave you, really? It leaves you with a few roles. Purser. Mm-hmm. Cook. Cook, yeah. Surgeon. Or some sort of religious type. So those are the four I've narrowed it down to. Bosun? No, not bosun. He's not a bosun. That's too practical for this guy. A bosun's a busy man. Got to look after ropes and sails and stuff, isn't he? Hey, this man has basically just turned up and shot an albatross. <laughs> <laughs> He's done nothing else. We're about to sit down on the voyage. Who have we got? We've got, yeah, we've got a bosun, got a helmsman, got a coxswain, got the captain. Yeah, that's good. Uh, do you know what we haven't got? We haven't got the crossbowman. Make sure we get him on board. I just imagine that when he, you know, when he shoots poor Alan and everyone's enraged and then someone just being like, you're not on the log. You're not on the log. Uh, we've got nothing on the manifest for you. Like, why, why are you here? What's your name again? <laughs> ancient. Ancient, ancient Mariner. Mariner. Mr. Okay. A. Mariner. <laughs> <laughs> that was just another query I had. I don't know if it gets cleared up in the, in the, in the subsequent parts. So, even though he's murdered Alan, everything seems to actually initially be going quite well. Mm-hmm. So, they still have a fair wind. They're still hammering along. He appears to have some guilt about his, his completely unprovoked murder of Alan. Mm. So, he says... And I had done a hellish thing, and it would work on woe. For all of it, I had killed the bird. So, is he guilty, or is he just worried that everyone's found out he killed the albatross, and now he's he's crapping himself because he thinks they are not going to be happy? Yeah, it does seem to be the second, doesn't it? There's no evidence to say it's the former. He just said, oh, I've done a hellish thing. Everyone hates me. <laughs> That's essentially <laughs> the, the sentiment there. <laughs> The subtle clue, everybody on this ship now despises me. Yeah, they're slagging me off and everything. They called him a wretch. Yeah, wretch, said they. Uh, and they seem quite convinced that the bird is in some way linked to the wind, which, as we discussed last week, makes sense. It does use the wind in its flight. So this is another case of people confusing correlation with causation. That's what this is. <laughs> I was going to ask you about this magical thinking where it sat with you it doesn't sit well with me <laughs> I don't care for it uh, everything seems to be going alright and then all of a sudden everything goes up the Esser quite literally where I've never I? heard anybody say up the Esser <laughs> <laughs> this, is, this is because I have to self-censor on this because you told me I wasn't allowed to swear 
<laughs> I think it's funnier when you try. That's, it's my own amusement, really. Up the Esser. <laughs> I thought of the one with the swear word in it before I said that, and I, I had to self-censor, you know. You say that, but you came to me and said, I can't swear on this podcast. And so far, we've had to bleep out your expletives uh, twice, I think. Oh, yeah, I've only done two. You seem remarkably adept at not using swear words. <laughs> like a normal person. I mean, I do swear sometimes, but... Yeah, but you're not a big swearer, are you? I, get, I have moods. The thing with swearing is, despite some of the received wisdom you may have heard, it, it is big and it is clever. <laughs> <laughs> it's like salt with food. It just brings out the flavour of what you're saying if you just drop in a nice swear word. Yeah, I would say I probably overly swear. <laughs> but you do it as a crescendo <laughs> when everyone's talking and the conversation's building. You'll literally just swear <laughs> to, to end it, of course. You have to get the last word in, and that word will be. <laughs> will be a profanity. Sorry, we keep losing our way today. We're not really doing much poem. We're a bit Sorry, like this mariner. Doesn't know if he's coming or going. <laughs> Lovely way of bringing it back. Well done. Professional. So, unsure about whether he's genuinely upset about Alan's death or not, or, or if he's just getting dirty looks from the other mariners. That's upsetting him. Right, so I did that thing where I just skipped loads because it lo- I lost interest. Okay. He talks about people hearing about him having killed the bird again, and they, I don't know, they say, well, you shouldn't have done that. That's going to ruin us. And then, lo and behold, it's true. It does ruin them. They lose their southerly wind that they've been really enjoying. Um, and the, the breeze dies down, and the sea goes deadly calm. Oh. So, it's deadly calm. And it's also mad hot as well. <laughs> yep. So now they put this down to the bird, right? They're all side-eyeing the ancient mariner. Mm. They're like, you, you absolute scoundrel killing that bird. Look what you've done. We're now got no wind. It's boiling hot. And we're not going anywhere. You absolute... Buffoon. Good phrase. But again, here I think... They are putting a little bit too much emphasis on on the impact of killing a bird, even though I think it's an awful thing to have done to kill Alan. I think they're probably in the doldrums. Mm-hmm. And I took this as an opportunity to try and map where they were on planet Earth. <laughs> this is the first time we get some location inf- information, even though it's hidden. Uh, and so I looked up exactly where the doldrums are, Matt. Okay. At this point in time, everybody, in their story, he is between 13 degrees north and 3 degrees north latitude and 29 degrees west and 25 degrees west longitude. So that's in the uh, Atlantic, just north of the equator. And if you were to draw a line between Brazil and Sierra Leone, they're roughly in there somewhere. So, that's so they, sh- they shot up back up past the line, right? So they were, because yeah. they, were whiz- they were whizzing way past the line and now they just shot up back over the line. Yeah, exactly. They crossed the line once again, not even mentioned it. There's big gaps in his story. The the run up from Antarctica was a non event. In that time, in that probably couple of weeks voyage, the only thought that crossed his mind was Hmm, I don't know if I should have killed Alan. Everyone's Yeah. Everyone's side eyeing me. The mood no, the mood's really turned. <laughs> yeah. No one's speaking to me anymore. I don't know what I'm gonna do. Uh, my days aren't that full because I haven't got any jobs to do, so I just suppose I'll sit around and ponder about whether or not I should have killed Alan. And now, and now everybody's just absolutely parched. 
with no, yeah. with no with no adequate water supply. It seems. Yeah, the, one of the cruelest of uh, nature's tricks, isn't it? That the sea is not drinkable. Absolutely, unless you're Forever. a fish. Do they drink it? No, let's move on. <laughs> <laughs> it's that's made actually. I don't even think though. Well, what about the mammals that live in the sea? Yeah, what in terms of hydration? Yeah, presumably they have to hydrate. Yeah, they must. Be, they must have some sort of filtration filtration system within their bodies to allow them to absorb that. Interesting. I'm gonna make a note of that. I'm gonna Google it afterwards. Bonus content right there. It's a Christmas special done. <laughs> so they're stuck in the doldrums. As far as I can tell, they remain in these doldrums until the end of this part of the poem. Mm-hmm. And towards the end of that, the ancient mariner blames the death of Alan for their predicament. And it gets very weird. So I'm assuming that he's gone a bit mad? Or lack of food? Or it's too hot? Because it seems very warm. But then he says things like, the very deep did rot, oh Christ. Whatever this should be, your slimy things to crawl legs upon the slimy sea. Now given that you told me in the previous part that ice was green... Mm. That was a flight of his fancy. Is this another flight of flight of fancy? It's difficult to say, isn't it? They seem to be inhabiting some sort of quasi-mystical world. Either that or he's absolutely delirious. Again, not really pointed out by Coleridge. No. And that was it. That's as far as I got, Matt. I, I didn't get much from this part. I felt like I really enjoyed the setup, part one. Part two, not, not, not much in it for me. He's just lamenting his previous murder. Well, let's go through part two, because the ending is quite important. So we already know that the sailors think the albatross is the cause of the breeze. um, And poor Alan, who has gone before us, has taken the breeze with him. I thought you might like the line, we were the first that ever burst into that silent sea. I did like that line. Did you like it because it had a pioneering element to it? (laughs) An ejaculatory element. <laughs> That'll make the cut. <laughs> yes, I actually I did quite like that bit. I'm sorry, I'm just looking for it now. I don't know why I liked it. Think on that and come and come back to it. It might come to you one night in about two o'clock in the morning. You'll wake up and you'll be like, "I know why I like that line." And then your wife will say, "Is that a kebab in the bed?" <laughs> Again, we've gone through that in the last episode. I did want to pick up on the bloody sun. It's really not a happy time on this ship, uh, just in general. Alan's gone. It's all gone downhill. But the image of the blood sort of harks back to Alan Batross, doesn't it? And the blood that he's spilled. And also, I think you could probably start making some uh, links here. I mean, in the last episode, you went through some of the religious connotations that yeah. seem to be at play. Who else? What other major religious figure died? Uh, which then formed quite an important part of, well, Western society, I suppose. I believe you're referring to uh, Jesus Christ. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Yeah, so Alan has already been um, well personified, really, as a Christian with a soul. Who is oh, now being, yeah, I've forgotten about that bit. So he's a Christian with a soul who's now being senselessly killed. So, uh, yeah, I think Cole was just wrapping that all up together now with a bloody sign. It's all the sort of the, the blood of Christ. Uh, you're, absolutely, also, you're not sure blood is red. The sun is yellow. Thing is red. Yeah, this is something that comes up a lot with poetry, actually, where people are like, "Why well, didn't they just pick the word?" 
And uh, so sometimes I'm sure people do. But here, what sequence do we think it took? Do we think it, do we think it was? I'm making a sort of allegorical point with Christianity and Christ here. And one of the important things is the blood of Christ. And I'm actually going to link that to the, the setting sun, which also does look slightly blood red. I think that'd be a great image. Or do we think it was the reverse? <laughs> where, where somebody went, oh, the bloody sun. A bloody sun. What can I link with blood? Oh, Jesus Christ. No, I, I don't think it is that way. I think it's the other way. I would like to counter that and say that I think that Colbridge was pro-moon and anti-sun. Because he might be like me, where he just does not like the heat. And he's just, bloody sun at noon. Absolutely. Bl- I hate the bloody sun. First Alan and now the sun. No bigger than the, It's no bigger than the moon. That is a weird line, I think. Always is a weird line, isn't it? I mean, because it definitely is bigger. That image, I just don't, I don't really get. Maybe I'm missing out on some sort of secondary reference here. But yeah, the sun, it's no bigger than the moon. Okay, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> word, maybe it's word count again. <laughs> Advertise with us to reach an audience who love to laugh are obviously very cool and sophisticated and have immaculate taste. I mean, they're here listening to this gold, right? Go to poetryblokes.com forward slash advertising to advertise with us today. The other major image that I wanted to reference, and it might be one that you've heard before, maybe, maybe yes, maybe no, is as idle as a painted ship upon a painted ocean. Oh, again, I like that because, as you know, I like paintings of ships. You There's do. one right in front of me at this point in time given to me by your fair self. It was, yes, it is indeed. Do you have the inscription on that? On the painting. Yeah. No, I don't, unfortunately. Oh, damn. Okay. It was definitely, it was definitely like a Spanish galleon being captured by the British fleet. Uh, yeah, it's definitely Spanish and British ships. They're predominantly single deckers. Yeah. Most of them are brigs. And they're rigging. Yeah, this is 20, bad radio. <laughs> 24 gun brig. As idle as a painted ship upon a painted ocean. So the line is quite famous and probably worth investigating a little bit further because it's linked with the concept of the sublime. Now, the sublime uh, in literature refers to or relates to rich imagery of things that exist beyond the normal or beyond normality everyday experience. So weird things, I suppose, image laden things. And Coleridge was very much into this and he was a big proponent of the sublime within his poetry. And he believed that it wasn't enough simply to describe a beautiful object as being beautiful, but it was his job to contextualise its beauty somehow, to draw it out and then plant an idea in the mind of the reader, so a more vivid visual of uh, what the object conveys. And that sort of runs through the poem. And I think that's what happens a bit later with the weird sea creatures crawling across the ocean, the slimy things to crawl with legs upon the slimy sea. I think he's sort of Amping up that mysticism. Oh, we're going to have to go back on that. I didn't understand that at all. So the sublime in literature relates to the imagery of an object. So it's not just about describing the object, but it's trying to sort of elicit or augment the image in your mind, particularly by talking about things that don't exist in the normal everyday or so somewhat fantastical. And Coleridge wanted to sort of bring out those qualities and then paint a picture in your mind. And he failed with you, isn't he? He failed to paint that picture. Yeah, because I just think of a painted ocean with a painted ship on it, and I think that's nice. Like, yeah, I'd buy that. I'd buy that painting. <laughs> I would buy that painting and hang it on my wall. 
It'd be nice to look at. Water like a witch's oils. I did quite like that one. That was nice. So the, the weird bits, right? We we breezed over it a bit. You're saying that essentially you think some of that's to do with the sublime and the imagery that he's trying to create. Yeah. So it's it's not like a literal reference because when I read that I thought, well, they run into like an algae patch, <laughs> and, and I, genuinely I was like, maybe they just run into a big algae patch, and now there's just things climbing all over it. And then I thought back to what you said about in part one when he's magical. Yeah. The emerald ice. I was thinking back to when you said that. I thought, no, Rich, don't be so literal about this. And I thought maybe it's because he's going a bit mad because there's no food and water. It's boiling hot. Yeah. You, you get loopy. So I yeah. figured he just got a bit insane. Was there more to that? No, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> you made that point and then looked at your notes. I was like, something big's coming. The other thing I thought uh, was interesting to look at is, I think, one of the most resonant images of the poem. Instead of the cross... The albatross about my neck was hung. Yes. And we still talk about having an albatross hung around your neck as you have a, a responsibility or a burden that you can never get rid of. It just follows you around and drags you down. Not only that image, but the image of it's an albatross instead of a cross. So another Christian reference there. And the mariner again, he doesn't have a cross on, so he's not Christian. Instead, he's got this burden of responsibility, the albatross, who, who only helped the ship and that he killed is now hung around his neck. So again, it's just that reinforcing of that religious dichotomy, I suppose. You've got Christianity on the one hand and then not Christian on the other hand. And it's just reinforcing the fact that the, the ancient mariner, according to Coleridge, is not Christian and has in fact done something against Christianity by his merciless slaughter of poor Alan. <laughs> um, we don't hear sight nor sound of his entrapped wedding guest. Does, no, you does... don't. That goes on a bit further after part two. I mean, there, there are many, many parts of this poem. It's very long. We're only going to focus on one and two. I think there are seven parts. I'd say there's um, too many parts. Uh, it's, it's very long, isn't it? It's very long. Essentially, the, the wedding is it's not a large part of this poem, really. It's very much the Mariner's story. There's a lot more death involved. And the Mariner sort of mentions how he's, I suppose, cursed to always drift from place to place and tell this story for the rest of his, so the I rest don't of his think- days. I know we said we're only going to do part one and two, but if people listen to these podcasts and they absolutely love the Ancient Mariner chat, we could come back and do parts three and four in a year's time. Yeah, totally. Write in now, poetryblokes.com slash submissions if you want us to look at parts three, four, five, six and or seven <laughs> of the Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner. Maybe to mix it up, we won't necessarily do them in the right order. <laughs> would that have any effect on the poem probably not probably well, you, not <laughs> well, not to me it wouldn't I don't know what's going on anyway do you want to hear a little bit about Samuel Taylor Coleridge himself the man himself hear a little bit about the man the man the myth the legend there's a bit more to Samuel Taylor Coleridge than there was to our friend Andrew Marvel back mm. in the, the pilot episode in terms of uh, biography so Samuel Taylor Coleridge was born on the 21st of October 1772 good year in Devonshire oh nice nice part of the world Mm. Oh, where the ship took off from? Yes, supposedly. Oh, so I absolutely know it. It definitely was <laughs> Devon then. His father was a vicar and a headmaster who unfortunately died quite suddenly in 1781. So Samuel's a mere nipper when that happens. He's nine years old. And in 1782, Coleridge entered Christ's Hospital in London where he completed his secondary education. And in 1791, he attended Jesus College, Cambridge. Clever lad, then. 
Yeah. This is where it starts getting a bit tasty, this story. In his third year at Cambridge, he encountered some uh, financial difficulty. and I'm sure we can all relate to that. But what we can relate less to is the fact that our friend Samuel signed up as a dragoon. So any of those who aren't uh, well-versed in 18th century uh, military history is a mounted infantryman. And it gets better because he signed up as a dragoon under the assumed name of Silas Tomkin Combabash. Oh, lovely. Benedict's dad. <laughs> but then again, some of his friends found out that he'd done a runner and signed up as a dragoon. And they were like, this isn't meant for you, mate. So they came and took him back and got him back into Cambridge. Um, <laughs> Those are good friends, because if you signed up to be a dragoon, I would sit back and wait and saw what happened. Absolutely. I know you would. I'd be like, well, let's see where this goes. In fact, no, to be fair, I would probably sign up with you. In fact, if we're, if we're honest, you would never sign up to be a dragoon. No. Um, you'd be the one who went and got somebody else. <laughs> what to sign up? No, so you, you would be the one to go and bring me back from being a dragoon. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. No, I absolutely would. It's not for you, Rich. You're, you're quite weak. You don't have much moral fibre. <laughs> and, <laughs> and you can't ride a horse, so. Give it up, mate. Give it's it not up. for you. Old Samuel got through Cambridge in the end, and then he marries. He married a woman, but she was never really the love of his life. He sort of felt like he was kind of a bit pressured into that by one of his mates, basically, who said something along the lines of, you know, a lot of people fancy this girl. They reckon you should marry her. And after a while, he sort of did. And then he was in a marriage with this woman whom he didn't love. Nevertheless, he was quite prolific in his early years of marriage, but he ended up meeting William Wordsworth at one point, another famous poet, and he also helped him out of his depression. So all-round nice guy, Samuel Coleridge there. Ah. Uh, another interesting twist. In the late 1700s, he managed to impress a couple of brothers with, uh, with his poetry and his works, who then gave him a stipend, basically, so he could just wander around Europe and think about important, cool stuff. Oh, what a dream. That is the dream, isn't it? It is a dream, isn't it? This doesn't happen enough anymore, really. No, uh, there's not enough rich benefactors knocking about. Uh, if anyone would like to provide me with a stipend for my poetical works, email us at poetryblokes.com forward slash submission. What would you do if you if you had a stipend that you could... How would you spend your days? Well, I mean, if someone is giving me a stipend to create literary works, I would go around Europe slash the world once it's open again and we're allowed to do that, and I would write poems that I would then dedicate to my benefactor. Is that genuinely what you do with your time? I mean, yeah, if they give me the money to do that, I would do that, yeah. If they said I'd like you to write some poems for me, yeah, sure. Mm, yeah, I don't want to do that. I'd want benefactors to give me money to make a boat. Raise a fleet, yeah, raise a fleet. Yeah. Just one, no, just one, one boat. I don't, not a whole fleet. Uh, to be honest, if there's anybody listening to this podcast who has any engagement with the world of woodworking in any capacity, get in touch because Rich is like, he's happy to do that. If you want someone to to help you lathe, oh. he would do that. Yeah, I'd say I've got rudimentary woodworking skills. I know my way around a chisel. If anyone wants to pay me to make things out of wood, but also learn how to do it better. At the same time, I'd be willing to take your money. <laughs> I love that. Career shout-outs. I'd also like to say to my current employer, I have no intention of leaving. <laughs> <laughs> Please do not fire me. <laughs> back to our pal Coleridge. Yep. When he comes back from wandering around Europe, he promptly falls in love with a woman called Sarah Hutchinson, or Sarah Hutchinson, in fact, depending on how she chooses to pronounce her name. Uh, but that sort of made him even sadder, because he was like, oh, no, I, I love this woman. Oh, actually, I'm trapped in a marriage with a woman I don't love. So it was a bit, you know, peaks and troughs. But they carried on sort of having a, a working relationship, and, you know, she sort of read his works and stuff. Uh, it no, all, that's it no all... good, though. That's no good. If you love somebody, you can't 
hang around with them. No, obviously not. No, but it yeah. happens so frequently. You just gotta put it out of your mind and move on. Yeah. Just lop them out of your psyche. You don't need them there taking up space. And Good obviously, it, that took its toll because in 1804, he had to swan off to Malta in hopes that the climate would help his, his failing health and nerves. Um, lucky for him, it did. And he came back to London feeling emboldened. In fact, he, he felt that like he'd been like a cowardly man previously and he wanted to be a bit, a bit bolder, more stereotypically manly. Right, um, okay. Did he join the Dragoons again? <laughs> he joined the Dragoons again. No, he actually came back to London and still carried on working with this uh, Sarah lady. But then she found it all a bit too much and she swanned off to Wales to live with her brother. I get the feeling that sort of swanning off is very much, uh, I'm going to Wales and never talking to you again. Goodbye. So she left and Coleridge became terribly depressed again. And this time he, he just took it up a notch. Because not only did he get depressed, he just got hooked on opium. Oh, yeah. Yep. Now he's talking. So there he was, just puffing away on the old opium. But, you know, he found out the old opium didn't do much for him. So he did what anyone else would do in that situation. And he headed off to Wiltshire to shack up with some of his mates for a while. And uh, while there, I think he got talking to a priest and he became more and more interested in religion and uh, eventually becoming slightly more aligned with, with Anglicism. In fact, Coleridge was a key believer in what's known as panentheism, which is a belief that God inhabits or is invested in all objects and everything in reality. So literally everything in reality is God. And that's what he believed in. So God permeated everything. And they also believed that there was a universal consciousness. It's amazing. It is amazing what Smokers Mobile will do to you. <laughs> it really opens things up. Don't do it. Don't, <laughs> don't ever do it. So after his trip to Wiltshire with his slight dabbling with Anglicism, he returned to London. And in 1824, a little bit of notoriety came along because he became a fellow of the Royal Society of Literature. And the benefit of that is he got a bit of a pension to live on. So... He got a bit of money until the day he died, um, which occurred in 1834. So that was the life of Samuel Taylor Coleridge. I mean, what a life. He lived a life, didn't he? He did, but he lived a sort of like mopey, <laughs> like whiny life. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he lived a mopey, whiny life. But that's one that I can relate to. I mean, yeah. to be fair, he ended up as a fellow of the Royal Society of Literature, so I can't deride him too much. Um, Who are we to judge? What are you currently a fellow of, Matt? I think maybe the Pret on the Strand <laughs> might be, might be an, honorary, an honorary fellow. Yeah, it's just right by my office, so tends to get a lot of my dollar. Not in the, not in the recent months, though, because we're all at home because of a pandemic. There we go, Rich. That was The Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner, parts one and two. It was interesting. I enjoyed part one. Not going to lie to you, Matt, thought part two was a waste of time. Didn't enjoy it that much. Okay. Probably good for you to sack off three, four, five, six and seven then as well. Early doors to say I'm not reading those parts. Yeah, and I'm not going. I'm not going to read them because if we do come back to this, then I would like it to be a surprise and, and interest, interesting. So I'm not going to spoil that surprise by reading them ahead. Oh, oh wow, that makes us very sensible. And if uh, you do want to look at the Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner further, please contact us via poetryblokes.com. We'd love to hear what you have to say, even if it is to force Rich to read another f- five parts of the Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner. We want to hear that from you. Get in touch. So, Matt, would you like to hear my summary? I absolutely would. Would you like to explain to the uh, listeners what the summary is? If you are um, a new listener to Poetry Blokes, after each poem, Rich writes his own version, which he writes in a more concise fashion from his perspective to convey the major themes of the poem. So with that, I'm going to hand over to Rich now for his summary of The Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner, part two. 
The Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner by Rich Cochran. We sailed north for a bit. The wind was all right. God, I feel a bit guilty about Alan. Oh, where did the wind go? Bloody hot, isn't it? I'm going a bit mad, you know. Fucking ghost Alan, he's cursed me. The end. There you go, man. <laughs> well, that was wonderful. Thank you, Rich. I've just realised we didn't actually mention at all the ghost bit that I got there. The ghost bit? Yeah, ghost Alan. I took from uh, of the spirit that has plagued us so. So I just, if anyone was wondering oh. why I thought Alan was a ghost, there's a bit in the stanza, three from the end, that yeah. mentions a spirit. And that's the bit I picked up on. <laughs> haunted by an albatross. <laughs> Which is funny imagery, I think. Much better than a painted ship on a painted ocean. Oh yeah, take that, Coleridge. And on that note, we'll say thanks very much, Rich. Please join us next week when we look at Slough by John Betjeman. Do you have a well-known poem you'd like us to discuss? Or maybe you've written your own engineer's overview you'd like to share. And if you have an embarrassing poetry-related story, then you definitely have to tell us all about that. Go to poetryblokes.com forward slash submissions now to let us know all about it, and you could play a part in the next show. This podcast is created and hosted by Matthew Adamo and Richard Gochran. Our theme music is Press Start by The Laszlo Project. Buy their music by going to bandcamp.com and searching The Laszlo Project.